You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. You know, the fraudsters never stop. Once they find a way in, they just continue to, to go and go and go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Pete Barker. He's Director of Fraud and Identity at an organization called SpyCloud. All right, Joe, uh, before we get to our stories this week, we have a couple of items of follow-up here. We do indeed. Uh, What did our listeners have to share with us this week? Micah writes in to comment on our catch of the day from last week. He says, if I had to guess, now this is the postcard that came in the mail with the QR code on it. Okay, yeah. He said, if I had to guess, this was someone building a database to correlate IP addresses to home addresses. Hmm. Uh, This kind of data is valuable for selling, and... It, one way to test it, he suggests, is to decode the the QR code without actually going to the URL and see if there's a unique identifier in there, which is a great suggestion. Right. Um, he thinks the method of mailing QR codes would be fairly effective, but not 100% reliable because people receiving the mail would be at home when they receive it, but they might not be connected to their Wi-Fi yet. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it's pretty st- – this is still a valid point. I don't think that's what's going on in our catch of the day. I think that was just a mass printed mailer uh-huh. that somebody did on their own. But this is still a good point. For marketing purposes, it would be remarkably simple to to mail out unique identifiers mm. and track who you mailed them to. And then, okay. uh, yeah, I mean, you could just put a hash of people's address in there. Right. Right? Right. Um, and, and bam, it's a great idea. Yeah. One of our other listeners uh, wrote in – about this as well and remind it because we had asked, I, I think I had wondered, had anyone ever just sent out postcards with just a QR code and nothing else on it? Right. And someone reminded me that uh, someone did just that thing with, um, during the Super Bowl this year. Remember? Right. They, yes, that was. <laughs> they did the Super Bowl I ad. believe that was Coinbase. Yeah, that just had the QR code. Yes, so, and uh, I was screaming at my family not to scan it. <laughs> Don't do it, I said. It's too late for me. Don't do it. Don't <laughs> right. do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michael also says, thanks for making the show, especially to the audio engineers at the CyberWire. They do a terrific job, especially compared to some of the mainstream news podcasts I listen to. Oh, well, that's that's very well, nice. Thank you, Micah. Yeah, I'm our, sure that our, our editors, as they listen to and edit this episode, will smile to themselves yes. <laughs> in appreciation. They go, ah, here's here's the one bright spot in me having to edit a podcast with Joe Kerrigan. <laughs> there you go. All right. We got some more follow-up here. What else do we have, Joe? We have Kevin, who writes, he was listening to the podcast, episode 192, which was our last episode. And you said something interesting about a certain person's PII and how it can be used. Mm. Your discussion made me reconsider the statement, quote, this information alone does not constitute PII, but in combination, it can become PII. Hmm. That's personally identifiable information. If I haven't said, I think I may have already said that. Anyway, uh, Kevin says he has a friend who found a service on the dark web that gives a discount if you have partial information, like a social security number or credit card number. Hmm. Because there are databases out there of, of all of our information, if you're looking for some portion of that information, you can get the rest of it from some service on the dark web. Hmm. on these dark markets. 
So kind of a correlation service that connects yes. the dots between it's, it's remarkably stuff. simple, Dave. It's just a database search. It's just putting it into a query, and mm-hmm. and, and it, these databases are out there and they exist. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Well, uh, thanks to everyone for sending in uh, those comments and questions. We would love to hear from you. You can send us an email. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right. Let's jump into some stories uh, here this week. I'm going to start things off for us. Uh, My story comes from uh, Bleeping Computer, uh, and it's titled Android Banking Malware Intercepts Calls to Customer Support. (laughs) So this is a a new one. (laughs) This is a banking trojan. Uh, for Android, uh, researchers from Kaspersky are calling this fake calls. Uh, and basically what this does is it it pretends to be your bank's customer service app. Right. And when you call your bank, and you can even put in the actual real number for your bank. In uh, in, in your phone. In your, in your phone, in your, your mobile device. App. Because right? we don't actually have a phone. Now we have a computer with a phone app There on you it. go. <laughs> so... Uh, your mobile device, you can put in the phone number for your bank, and this app intercepts it and sends it to their own call center. Uh-huh. And the folks at the call center even have, uh, you know, phony hold <laughs> announcements. Thank you for calling. <laughs> right, we're, call- we're currently having an unusually large volume of calls, that sort of thing. Right. Uh, and then they connect you with an operator who is pretending to be from the bank, and it's not from the bank. It's... From there, it's the bad guys. The scam center. The scam center. And then they gather all your information, and you think that you're speaking to the bank and customer service, but you're not. You're talking to the scammers. Huh. Yeah. Where where, where are people getting this app? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, evidently, people are sideloading this. So uh, it's not up on the regular Google Play store. Huh. Um, but I, I suspect what's happening is someone does a does a Google search and says, you know, bank name, customer service. Right. And these folks are probably running ads that pop up that yep. says bank name, customer support app. You know, don't don't wait in line for service. Fastest way to get service yes. or something like that. Right. I'll bet that's exactly right. People go through. They see it. It has all the right logos. The phone numbers match up. Everything looks legit. And uh, and who would go to the trouble of building a custom app, right? Right. That's yeah. a scam app. That would be stupid, right? Yeah. And so that's uh, Brian Brushwood was saying saying that. Yeah. Uh, that his uh, you know, a lot of times, that's how people think these things through to themselves. They mm-hmm. think uh, mm-hmm. they could build this custom app, but that would be stupid. Yeah. yeah. So so far, uh, these folks seem to be targeting people in South Korea. Uh-huh. It doesn't seem to have made its way over to our part of the world yet, but I suppose that's only a matter of time. Oh, it will be here <laughs> if this works well in South Korea. If this it, this is, South Korea is a test market. That's what that's yeah. what this is. Yeah. So uh, recommendations here, of course, don't sideload. Don't apps. sideload apps. Never um, sideload apps. If you're if you're not developing applications, you have no reason in the world to set that um, that little flag in your phone to to la- allow apps from third party stores. Right. I mean, there are third party stores like Amazon has an app store that uh, that you might want to use. I guess. Yeah. Uh, I don't know uh, if it's available on Amazon. It's probably also available on the Google Play Store. Yeah. Uh, or on the um, Apple Store. I don't know that you. 
You can't sideload on an iOS device. Yeah, you device. can't sideload an iOS. Doesn't mean that uh, you know sometimes things get through on the app on Apple's App Store as right. well. Yeah, sometimes. and they do that with the uh, with the the Google Play Store as well. Yeah, and these things. It was just a story you guys were talking about on the CyberWire where somebody went through and found like ten thousand apps. Yeah, that was that were all carrying banking malware. Yeah, it seems like these folks, I think, tend to go to Android first because it is, I think the bar is lower. Right. Uh, it's easier to get to, because you can sideload things, and and I think it is a little easier to get things onto the Google Play Store than it is on the iOS side. Right. Um, but, um, yeah. Well, I'm going to quote Chris Rock of. here. Just because you can do something doesn't necessarily make it a good idea. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you can drive a car with your feet, too. Right. So, so uh, if you're looking for your bank's customer service app, uh, go to for, go to the legit app stores. Right. Make sure it's the the real one. But I, I think this points out that extra vigilance is required. Yes. Because it's getting harder to tell, and the bad guys are upping their game, making custom apps. All right. Uh, again, that's from Bleeping Computer. We will have a link to that story in the show notes. Joe, what do you have for us this week? Dave, my story comes from Bailey Hurley at Valley News, which is a news organization out of North Dakota. Okay. And uh, there's a woman named Angie Olson, who is a teacher who works in Fargo. She is 76 years old. Ooh, you betcha. Right. <laughs> she had just gotten home from school to find a pop-up message on her laptop telling her that uh, to call a specific number for help. Hmm. Right? Okay. So when she called the number, a man named Wilbur, and the article puts in quotes because I'm quite sure his name wasn't Wilbur. Yeah. Right? Uh, told her not only had... Did, did her computer have, quote, loads of child porn oh. on it, but her phone and her bank were all compromised. Okay. Okay. Now, I can think of nothing more terrifying to a teacher than to say we found loads, than to lie to them and say we found loads of child porn on your computer. Right. 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 All right. That is, that, that this is. It's a career killer. It's a, well, yeah. Yeah. It, not only that, but it's, it's, it, it. It runs the risk of tainting your entire career, especially if it's not true, right, right? Right, That kind of thing can just, even even, even the accusation of it can ruin a career. Sure. Um, but this is this weird confluence where somebody says, hey, we found a bunch of, of uh, CSAM images on your computer to somebody who works with kids on a daily basis, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And is is not somebody that, that does that kind of thing. Right. Right. Uh, so the other thing he said was, one thing I'm going to tell you right now is that um, you authorized a withdrawal of money from your account last night at 4.30 in the morning. Hmm. And Ms. Olson is like, what? And he says, yeah, $15,000 is expected to be taken out of your account in two hours. Okay, so the clock is ticking. Right, exactly. Uh-huh. All right. All right, so notice how this is working. Yeah. One, he scares the ever-loving crap out of this woman. Right. <laughs> right. right. Two. That's he, a term of art. Right. <laughs> That's Right. <laughs> Two, he puts this two-hour artificial time constraint on her, mm-hmm. right? Now she's worried, and he says, I'm going to connect you to your bank, which is Gate City Bank. I don't know how he got the name of her bank. She probably actually told him uh, and doesn't recall it from this, this incident. It's, it, that's a cold reading technique Sure, these guys do. Um, you know, like when a psychic says, I'm getting a name, a name that starts with an M or an N or a K or an L. You're Larry. Yes, Larry. That's <laughs> right. Right, right. Um, you know, that, it's that kind of thing. So the guy calls up the bank. It's not the bank, but uh, the guy from the customer service organization of the bank mm-hmm. says, uh, who says his name is Dave, says you need to go physically to the bank and withdraw the money. 
and then wire it to a new secret account to protect it. Mm -hmm. They coach this woman on the phone the entire time, including what she should tell employees of the bank so that that didn't raise any red flags. Wow. Right? She was then instructed to take the cash to a Bitcoin ATM. Wait for it. Right. (laughs) Okay. Bitcoin ATM in uh, South Fargo to keep the money safe from scammers. Sure. Okay. Dave and Wilbur promised the money will be returned the next day. Uh Of course, it will not be. Yeah. A few things I want to talk about here. These scammers have adapted, right? They're getting a lot of uh, their money clawed back from wiring the money out to another account, Mm -hmm. right, as a fraudulent transfer. So they've adapted to saying, well, we'll get around that. We'll just have people go buy Bitcoin with uh with with cash and send us the bitcoin because there's no claw on that bitcoin back unless you physically get access to those keys yeah right uh if you don't do that you'll never get the money back so you can walk up to a bitcoin atm yep with fifteen thousand dollars in cash apparently yeah and shovel twenty dollar bills into this machine one at a time right and have it turned into bitcoin yeah, I know that you can do that with $5 bills, Dave. Uh, that's the only th- thing I've ever purchased is uh-huh. uh, I've purchased uh, Litecoin from a Bitcoin ATM. Okay. Uh, and I'll tell you, it's not a good deal because <laughs> I pay $5 and I get $3 worth of Litecoin. Okay. Whoever's operating that Bitcoin ATM is making a lot of money. Yeah. Um, I was thinking like, uh, just the way my mind works, I was thinking set up a fake Bitcoin ATM, right? All it does is suck in money. Right. Tells you it's created a Bitcoin, and then, you know, the next day you collect your ATM full of money. Right. <laughs> off you go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe that would work. Yeah. There, there might be a way to make it make it work. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Huh. It, it could. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I only did five bucks because I was afraid of exactly that situation, mm-hmm. you know? If I put five bucks in here, what do I lose? Not much. But if I put $15,000 in here, I'm out $15,000. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, back to Ms. Olson. Back to Ms. Olson. Okay. Uh, I, want to, I want to focus on some of the quotes in this article from Ms. Olson. Okay. Okay. Uh, this is a quote. Once I truly was scared that I was losing my money, I just fell for everything and I didn't see any red flags. Today, I see them all over the place. Hmm. Right? Very common. Yeah. Very common thing. What happened to Ms. Olson was... She got put into an absolute state of fear where she couldn't think clearly mm-hmm. through this thing. An outside influence, friendly to Miss Olson, could have been a, of great help. Mm-hmm. So if you ever get into this kind of situation where you're having these kind of things happen, uh, if you can reach out to somebody else, even though these guys are telling you not to, right. go ahead and do that. Right. It also helps to be inoculated against these kind of things, to know these kind of scams. Miss Olson said she uh, she had never heard of these scams before. Mm-hmm. So it was new to her. Yeah. That's one of the reasons it worked. Mm-hmm. Another great quote, it feels like my mind was controlled. My choices were taken from me. I had to do this. I lost control of my thinking, which is exactly what these guys do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Today, I think I was stupid, but at the point I was like, no, they're helping me. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Right. These are all telltale signs that, that you're under the control and influence of another person. And, Again, I'm going to quote Brian Brushwood again. He he says, these scams don't work on us because we're stupid. Miss Olson is not stupid. Mm-hmm. She's, a, she's a school teacher. She teaches other children. Uh, she fell for the scam because she didn't know it was a scam. And she was scared witless 
by the uh, accusations these guys made. Mm-hmm. These accusations are designed to scare you witless. Right. 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 Uh, and and all you are thinking about when someone makes this kind of accusation is what about all the kids I've educated? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. What about what about the law enforcement coming to find find this out? You know mm-hmm. what, what's going to happen here? That's that's pretty much where your focus goes to uh, yeah. when these guys make these kind of horrible accusations about it. Uh, the last quote from Ms. Olson I want to say uh, repeat here is she says it's a fifteen thousand dollar lesson that I'm paying forward. Mm. Okay, so Ms. Olson came forward about this. Not only came forward, but talked about it with a news outlet, right? Uh, and and made a report about it. Good for you, Ms. Olson. Thank you very much. I hope that more people read this kind of thing or hear about this thing or watch the uh, watch the article on the, uh, or you know the story on the news and just become aware of these things. You know, we 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 have an audience here that's that's very cybersecurity focused and aware. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would like to think that none of our audience would fall for this, but our audience is a small portion of the entire population. So there are people out there who have never heard heard of scams like this, like Ms. Olson. Yeah. Um, you know, and we've we've had stories on here of people like, would you say a person who teaches medicine at Harvard School of Medicine is dumb? No, but we've had a story about somebody who got scammed out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. Who worked as a teacher at Harvard School of Medicine, but she did the same thing. She came forward and talked about it. Yeah. Talked about the loss. This isn't embarrassing for people, but Miss Olson is doing the exact right thing here and telling people about it. Yeah, it also makes me think that, you know, you each of us should have like a trusted friend, you know, right. so, like a buddy system where you both agree that even if there's a circumstance where someone is telling you, you can't tell anyone about this, right? you know, uh, that— That should be a big red flag for anything. It should be, but that you've got one person at least in your life who you can tell yep. them about this. Yep. It could be your person that you could just run things by and say, this is what's happening, and this person's saying I shouldn't tell anyone, uh, but you're the person I count on to run by these things, and, mm-hmm. and I think even that would help Yeah, a lot of these things. Immensely. Also, yeah. if you happen to see someone who is— uh, Pumping twenty dollars bills into an ATM, a Bitcoin ATM. Maybe, maybe ask them mm-hmm. what they're doing. You know, hey, yeah, yeah. Because we, I mean, we've talked about how we we've already seen uh, that a lot of the cashiers at right. places like convenience stores have been trained when people come in to buy lots of gift cards yep. to ask them what's yep. going on here, and that's great. But if you have an ATM. There's no one monitoring that. Right. You know, there's it's not a it's not a interaction with a person. Nope. The machine's not going to care that you're shoveling money into it. That's a good day for the machine. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> the machine might even be programmed to be happy about that. That's what the machine was born to do. Right. So, yeah. All right. Well, good story. Uh, we'll have the link to that in the show notes uh, for sure. All right, Joe. Those are our stories. It is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from John, who writes, I am not the original poster, but I thought this was hilarious and perfect for a catch of the day. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Dave, it's a uh, it's an email. I found the link on Imager uh, because that's how John sent it to us. Uh, Dave, go ahead and read this 
monstrosity. <laughs> okay. It says, goes, let's see. This is crazy. So I'm going to do a crazy voice here. All right. It says, dear costumer, your secret phrase has been incapacitated because of different utilization of mistaken login subtleties. For your security, we have impaired your internet-based account. To reestablish your record and proceed with the utilization of online record and stop further debilitating of your account. <laughs> How will I respond? Click on the button beneath and sign me in to your record and update your data. And we are upset for any issue. Much obliged to you. Hope to hear from you soon. Amazon service team. Dave, call me skeptical, but I don't think this is from the Amazon service team. I don't think it is. No. Uh-uh. I don't know couple things here. Yeah. <laughs> a couple things. <laughs> One or two. I mean, it does have the Amazon logo. So. It sure does. But I, I mean, like Dear Costumer. That's Right. <laughs> it's addressed to me for when I dress like a pirate. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. I'm just thinking about the poor, uh, you know, Broadway costumer who this act makes its way to. And they go, oh, they're talking to me. <laughs> right. That couldn't be a scam. <laughs> Oh, How'd yeah. they know I was a costumer? Right. Exactly. This, it can only be for me. It must be real. Yeah. <laughs> It's a great one. Thank it you, John. Is. Yeah, thanks, John. And again, uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have uh, something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Pete Barker. He is the director of fraud and identity with an organization called SpyCloud. Here's my conversation with Pete Barker. Well, from my past experience, um, previously working at Dick's Sporting Goods, the evolution of fraud has evolved over time, if that kind of makes sense. What I've noticed in my previous role was, you know, the fraudsters never stop. Once they find a way in, they just continue to to go and go and go. And and a lot of times what ends up happening is the practitioner doesn't realize right away what's going on. So it's not like, hey, I own a store and I know I had this box in this certain spot. And you walk by that area and you go, hey, wait a minute, I didn't sell that. Where did it go? I think somebody took it. Hmm. Unfortunately, in the e-commerce space, when you have a fraud attack, it happens, and you typically don't find out till after the event has occurred. It could be up to 30, 60, 90 days later. And that really puts the practitioners in a predicament with fraud chargebacks. To what degree does it affect the retailer? Like you said, you know, you, you used to be at Dick's Sporting Goods. So, if, you know, if somebody comes in and fraudulently buys a, a pair of Nikes or a golf club or a lacrosse stick, you know, how does that affect the retailer versus the other people who are a part of that retail chain? Well, I will tell you, Dave, in my vast experience with actually over 25 years in retail and e-commerce fraud combined, um, it, it affects everything. So number one, when somebody takes something from a store or they fraudulently place an order online, that impacts the retailer, which then those costs are then passed down to the consumer. So -hmm. there's never been a time where a retailer says, you know, hey, we're going to just kind of absorb this and we're not going to pass those costs down. Whether it's in a brick and mortar situation where somebody takes a pair of shoes, literally the consumer is going to pay for that in the end. 
And so as things have moved to the digital realm, there's a little more distance between, you know, the customers and the folks in the store. How has that affected things? Well, it's made it it's made it really difficult. And I can tell you in a couple for a couple reasons. Number one, when you're in a brick and mortar store, you actually get to physically see somebody. You get to engage them. You get to have a conversation with them. And again, you're engaging them. So you can actually get very comfortable with that person that's in front of you. And you always want to give that highest level of customer service. However, when somebody's online, their their identity is neutral. You have no idea who they are. Now, thankfully enough, a lot of companies, just like the exporting goods, they have a really good knack of knowing their customers. But over time, as the e-commerce footprint grew, you went from a very small e-commerce footprint to a very large e-commerce footprint. And it's very difficult to identify, hey, is this a good order or is this not a good order? Is this a fraud or is this not a fraud situation? How much of this is a collaboration between you know, the retailer, folks like the credit card companies? Or are they looking out for each other? Is, is there information sharing going back and forth? Well, that's a really good question, Dave. Unfortunately, there's not. The only information that's being shared is when you get the bad news that basically tells you that it's a fraud chargeback. And then mm-hmm. it's a co- incumbent upon the retailer then to do whatever they can to try to build a case to recoup those funds. Uh, when I was in the space just not too long ago, there was about a 40% win rate, meaning that about 40% of the time when you represented that fraud chargeback, you got made whole and you got your money back. But 60% of the time, the retailer ate that charge back. Can you give us some insights as to what goes into that decision? You know, what has to happen for it to be on the retailer versus being on the, the credit card company? So there's a lot of mystery and magic that goes on behind the curtain here. I can't tell you. <laughs> uh, I can't tell you uh, that it's in, it's become increasingly difficult for the retailers to win these cases. Now, again, if you put together enough compelling information, meaning, hey, this item was delivered to this address. This is their bill to. This is their ship to. Everything matches. By the way, this is their actual email address. If you could put together all that compelling information and then return it back to the banks, you have a pretty good chance of winning that. But Hmm. again, it's a 60-40 mix. And, you know, the banks aren't giving up the reasons why. They just tell you either you win or lost. They give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And really, the mystery is in the magic what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, I mean, sort of pivoting to the types of things that you and your colleagues are, are dealing with uh, at SpyCloud, what is on the cutting edge of, of fraud and identity uh, these days? What, what sort of things are, are coming to your attention? Well, I, I think it's incredibly important for organizations to look at their current fraud stack because there is not a silver bullet out there And it's not a one size that fits all. Where we come into play is we have solutions that could assist the retailers and or the banks in making good decisions. And the way we do it is like no other. We have data that nobody else in the fraud space has today. And by having this data 
and being able to recapture it from the criminal underground. We bring in this data and then we turn it back over to the folks that are using our products and they could then identify, hey, is Pete actually who he says he is? And again, what separates us from the rest of the pack is the fact that we have, we're taking a look at this customer's identity much differently than any other tool that's out there today. And, and really, we're using the tools that the criminals are using to help in the good and not the bad. How much in the world of, of fraud prevention is, is looking at behavioral things, you know, matching patterns and uh, looking for those types of uh, events? Well, I think there's a lot of tools out there today that do a really good job at that. But with my vast experience, we have come to the conclusion is there is no silver bullet. You have to have a layer in your stack. While behavior analytics are great, and maybe some identifying, you know, third-party ID verification tools are great. When you look at what we have to offer, it's completely different than the rest of the products that are out there. And that's what really makes us so unique. While one of these tools individually are not the silver bullet, when you start layering these all in the stack, it really helps banks and retailers make great decisions. So from a consumer's point of view, are there any tips you have for them in terms of you know, things they can do on their end to make sure that they don't find themselves victims to this sort of thing? Absolutely. Number one, change your password. Do not use the same password over and over again. And I know this is easier said than done. And I'm 100% guilty of this. My wife's guilty of it. My daughter's guilty of it. When you look at all the data that's out there. When we look at compromised data, one of the number one ways that the criminals get into your information is bad password hygiene. More importantly, if you've been identified by one of these companies as being part of a data breach, change your password. Ironically enough, which this kills me, Dave, we can see in our data that people were compromised. And then when we run a report again, we can see that they never changed their password. Why would you, once you were identified that you were compromised, why would you not then use a stronger password? Re, do not recycle your password. But you know what? I understand the challenge out there. We all have multiple things that we have to log into. Most, most of us, don't have password managers. We're writing down things or we're putting it in our iPhone. And quite frankly, it's a lot easier just to reuse passwords or some variation of it. And the criminals love this. You know, speaking of, of mobile devices, you know, we've got uh, newer technology available to us through those things like Apple Pay and, and Google Pay, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and it's my understanding that there's some additional security involved with those. There's some tokenization of the transactions uh, to what degree do you think that, you know, that's a good way to go, that that adds an extra layer versus, you know, using your credit card, say, at a, at a, a gas pump, something like that? Well, I, I could tell you, Dave, I think if you're in a situation and if there's a step-up authentication or if there's another level of security provided, whether it's Apple Pay or Google Pay, it can't hurt. There's no doubt about it. I think, you know, companies today are trying to do the best, especially the big ones, the Apples of the world and the Googles of the world. 
they're trying to grab a piece of the market share and they're trying to do it in a way that's safe for everyone to operate. Because at the end of the day, they want you to be able to swipe your card and buy stuff. So I think it can't hurt. But again, when you look at it holistically, there are no silver bullets because as good as some of these big tech companies are, the fraudsters are that much better. Where do you suppose we're headed here? I mean, when, when you look at the history of this cat and mouse game, any idea what the future holds for us? You know, I think there's going to be challenges no matter what's in play. Is is difficult or as challenging it is, and we saw this during COVID uh, with the amount of volumes, e-commerce has exploded over the last two years. And I think it's just going to continue to get bigger and bigger. I don't think there'll ever be a situation where brick and mortars go away. I do believe there's going to be a need for someone to go in and try something on, for somebody to go in and swing that golf club or try on their skis because they just don't want to make that investment and have a bad experience and have to shift all that stuff back. I do think, though, it's going to continue to be the challenge for everyone uh, with fraud because as companies continue to pivot and they put in more more friction, I hate using that F word, whether it's multi-factor or step up, and you know what, it's proven that those could even be beaten. I think this is gonna be a cat and mouse game for quite some time, to be honest with you. I don't think it goes away. While it might get better, I still don't think it's gonna go away. All right, Joe, what do you think? First thing I want to say is once these guys get in, once they find a fraud that works, mm-hmm. they're going to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. They're going to stay there mm-hmm. for as long as they can. Yeah. Uh, you know, Dave, when I was a little kid, yeah. you know, under the age of 10, right. there was a, uh, a gumball machine outside of a hardware store. Oh, yeah, sure. And a buddy of mine and I figured out that you could crank the gumball machine a little bit forward yeah, and then crank it back, take the coin out, and then go ahead and crank it all the way forward again. Oh. We went over there with a paper bag. <laughs> <laughs> Not satisfied with one free gumball. Not satisfied with one you free gumball. You had to empty the entire machine. Right. A guy came out of the hardware store and says, don't you kids think you've stolen enough from that machine? <laughs> Ooh, nice. And we were like, oh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> And he just sent us off. You know, the machine was damaged, right? It's yeah. not supposed to work that way. But we took full advantage of it, just like any scammers would. Yeah. When they find a flaw in the system, they're going to exploit it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because essentially, they're, you know, seven-year-old kids, right? Right. Who, who don't have real jobs. Uh, these online fraud cases are just like shoplifting. Uh, it is a cost for these business. Higher costs drive up prices. That means the better a company is at preventing fraud, the more competitive they can be on price. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like shoplifting. The more shoplifting you can prevent, the, the better off you're going to be. I mean, have you ever walked into a Best Buy? Yeah. You know the people in the yellow shirts are the people that prevent shoplifting, right? I did not know that. Ah. I did know that. <laughs> what people in yellow shirts? <laughs> when, when you walk in, there's there's two people, there's two shirt, two color shirts in, in a Best Buy, blue shirts yeah. and yellow shirts. Okay. The yellow shirts are the, uh, the inventory control. Ah, loss prevention. Loss prevention, okay. exactly. And okay. the blue shirts are customer service. Okay. No red shirts, though. So you create a disturbance to distract the yellow shirts. Right. I'll run out with a 55-inch plasma TV. Yes. Okay. 
Does anybody even make plasma TVs anymore? They do not. No, okay. They're hard to come by. I still have one, but I have to one come too. By. It's yeah. it's getting old. That thing sucks <laughs> a lot of power. They do. They are not terribly efficient, but no. boy, those deep blacks are they are pleasure to look at. Yes. <laughs> but we digress. But, right. <laughs> As we normally do. Yeah. Uh there is no information sharing. Mm-hmm. And this is a common theme that we're getting here. You know, there is no, there's no the credit card companies don't communicate with the merchants. I mean, but how does that happen? How would what does that look like? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I'm not I'm not shocked by that because you think about the credit card companies. How many merchants do they have? How would they communicate this information? That hasn't been thought about yet. I mean, it needs to be thought about. Yeah, uh, and, it, and it needs to be done. And I think that eventually it will be, but we're nowhere near ready for that yet. Hmm. One of the things I think that's going to play into that is the consolidation of the merchants. For example, like companies like Square and. Uh, and Shopify and all those companies are essentially big front ends that provide credit card services to individual merchants. Right. Right. But they're actually the people that talk to the credit card companies. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that from the, uh, from the credit card company's perspective, thousands of vendors can be represented by one vendor, one big aggregate vendor. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, or actually it's not square anymore. We said last week, it's now called block. Thank you, everybody, for changing the names of your companies. I'm looking at you, Meta. Uh, dis- <laughs> I found it interesting that disputing a chargeback is essentially a black box from the merchant's point of view, mm-hmm. right? There's no – it. I, I think it just seems like it's capricious, you know? Maybe we'll let it go. Maybe we won't. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know what you do as a merchant. I also find it interesting that SpyCloud is using the tools that the criminals use uh, to commit the fraud as something for fraud prevention. Mm-hmm. You know, like I say often, these tools are just tools, right? Yeah. And if you've built a tool to to defraud people, people can also use that tool to detect the fraud, uh-huh. right? I think that's a, a brilliant implementation of 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 that. Uh, I don't know axiom or truth. You know that yeah. that piece of information. The yeah. Tools are just tools, and they can be used for good or evil. Yeah. Uh, here, once again, and finally, this is the last thing I'm going to say about this. We hear once again about how bad password reuse is for you. Yeah. Uh, Pete is is talking about even when people know that they've been part of a breach, they don't go in and change their passwords. Yeah. I, I can't. I can't. I can't say enough how much <laughs> that frustrates me. <laughs> yeah. But really, it is easy if you use a password manager. It's just easy. Just. Change your password. It takes uh, it takes a couple seconds. Use a password manager so that even if your password is breached and if it's been hashed and not stored in plain text, that you still have a really good chance of uh, having a complex password thanks to your password manager that w- may never get broken. Mm-hmm. Your account may never be compromised even if the information is breached. Use yeah. a password manager. There's so many reasons to do it. Yeah. I was talking to someone uh, recently uh, in an interview. I was, I was speaking with someone and they were – we were kind of using the uh, analogy about, um, you know, a, a crook walking around a neighborhood and checking car doors. Right. You know, to see if any cars are unlocked, to go in and grab loose change or whatever. And this person made the point that where that analogy breaks down with computers is that computers don't care. Computers have all the time in the world to check every single door. Right. Right. They yep. don't, they're not on some, there's no, value proposition of having to make my way through this neighborhood and there's only so many cars and I have only so much time. Right. They'll bang away at every car in the neighborhood as long as it takes. Right. Right. And so 
And the, so the notion that, oh, I can keep my password uh, be, because they're probably not going to get to me. No, they're going to get to you. That's not how it works. Yeah. <laughs> right. That is going to happen. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Pete Barker from SpyCloud for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.